You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is the wrap-up teaching for week six, covering Numbers chapters 20 and 21. So I'm going to just wrap these up then for us. There's a lot in these two chapters, but as we've mentioned already, I think it's a very significant point in the book. It's a huge turning point in the book in that we're both reaching rock bottom in one sense with Moses's failure, and then we have even more grumbling after that. But we're also starting to see these victories take place in the same place that they have failed before. We're seeing the old generation dying, but the next generation is continuing to rise up and they're ready to see God fulfill his promises. So let's take a look first at chapter 20. So the water from the rock. If this story looks familiar to you, it should, because something like this happened in Exodus 17, right after they went through the waters at the Red Sea and before they were given the law at Mount Sinai. So this was pretty early after they left Egypt. In Exodus, this similar account, it has significant differences though that are worth pointing out because God commands Moses to strike the rock once in the first account. But in this story, almost 40 years later, God commands Moses to speak to the rock. Now we know that Moses doesn't speak to the rock, but rather he speaks harshly to the people instead and then he strikes the rock twice. And I do think when we read this, we feel bad for Moses. We feel really bad for him. I read this story and I think, so Moses got a little upset. He acts impulsively. But why such a harsh punishment for Moses? Why punish him so severely for this outburst? After all, the people were, in fact, rebels, right? He's not saying anything that's untrue. So let's examine this. Well, he is saying some things that are untrue, but... The fact that they're rebels, that was true. So why are Moses and Aaron not getting into the promised land? What was their sin? I think there's several things at play here. Um, We already talked about how ultimately it was a matter of their heart, but let's just look at it a little deeper. The obvious part is that there's disobedience, right? So he told him to speak to the rock, and Moses speaks harshly to the people, and then he strikes the rock. And it's significant that Moses disobeys in front of all the people, because he is God's mouth to the people. He is the closest one to God in the camp, and he is God's representative that God chose along with Aaron. And remember how we talked about how the stakes are higher and the consequences are more severe the closer that you are to God and the more responsibility that you have? Moses is God's faithful servant and leader, and much is expected of him, and he has been faithful his whole life. Not that he hasn't made mistakes, but he has been talking to God face to face. He's God's faithful servant. So with this in mind, I think we can look more closely at what Moses says and see that he is putting himself in God's place rather than being God's mouth. He calls them rebels and he says, must we bring you water out of this rock? In that instance, I think he's making himself their judge and their deliverer. Even if his accusation against the people is accurate, it was not his place to speak to them in that way. God was going to show them mercy, and then he takes credit for what the Lord was going to do. 
but what then I think it boils down to is that he is then also demonstrating unbelief like the rest of the people, which is, I think, why, why he's given the same punishment then. We don't know why God gave him these different instructions, but God does, and God's word is life. And in that moment, it seems as if he also fell into that familiar mindset of not keeping God in the equation and not holding the difficulty and the truth together, but rather he puts the importance on himself. So God tells him in verse 12, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. We're not entirely sure then too why Aaron is included when it appears as though Moses is the one who sins here, but the Lord includes him and he knows his heart. And so while the text doesn't give us these details, I think we know uh, from what God says that he too was not honoring God in the sight of the people because he too was included that in that being the mouth of the Lord. We just saw how the Lord set him apart with the whole staff budding thing and everything. So, um, so now I want to point out again this major break in the pattern. Grumbling, disobedience, punishment, and then that's it. Now we do have the mercy in that the water still flowed from the rock and God provides abundantly for the people. But there's no intercession here. And I think that's because there's no one to intercede. There's no one left to intercede for the people. I know we're like, where's these 70 elders, right? But Moses and Aaron have always been those intercessors. And now they themselves have proven to be guilty of unbelief as well. And so then the story ends. He's, God says, here's the punishment, and then that's it. It's sad. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's okay, Chris. It's sad, and we feel so especially bad for them because they were so close to making it in. They were, close, they were so close to the end of their wilderness wanderings. And it feels so cruel to see them not enter the land. But as a side note, let's not forget that they will enter into God's rest, right? I mean, they are going to be with the Lord in eternity. And we know Moses then even like appears with Jesus at the transfiguration. So I think things turn out pretty well for him. <laughs> um, that's a whole other conversation that I love to have, but it doesn't, it just feels hard in this moment though. And so while this moment is sad, it is an important moment symbolically because it shows us how even Moses and Aaron need somebody to intercede on their behalf. We know that Moses and God were super tight and they share a relationship that is unique, but even Moses is a sinner and he needs a savior. He is not the perfect leader and he cannot save the people. They are God's people, not Moses's people. So let's just develop this a little bit more. Last week, Casey pointed out how our grumblings have been going from the outside of the camp and working their way in. Do you remember how we talked about the camp having those different layers of holiness? So the grumbling started with the rabble, or the foreigners on the outside. And they said, we want meat. This food isn't good. We want meat. And then the people at large, the tribes, they grumbled by not wanting to enter the land, and they refused to enter the land. And then we have... And then we get closer, closer to the circle. Then we have the Levites. They rebel. The Levites say, we want the priesthood. We're, we actually want more than what we've been given. And now we've come to the innermost layer around God. We have Moses and Aaron, the closest ones. So we've gone all the way from the outside 
to the inside to see that from the least holy layer to the most holy layer, no one is able to enter the land on their own power. No one can be righteous enough to believe and serve the Lord wholeheartedly. However, as a caveat, we know Joshua and Caleb do in fact enter the land, so that doesn't hold completely true, but I think they serve as a beautiful example for us then. But we can see how from the outside to the inside, no one is able to save themselves. No one, everyone needs an intercessor. And I think that is the point here, that over Moses and Aaron intercede for the people over and over again, and then eventually they themselves fail, and we can see that they are not the perfect intercessors. They point us to our need for the perfect intercessor who is yet to come. They point us to the one who will stand between the living and the dead, like Aaron did. And this intercessor will make one sacrifice for all people for all time. And Moses, Moses and Aaron eventually failed to believe God. But Christ lived a sinless life and never failed to honor his father. Moses and Aaron were the mouths of God to the people, but Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. He is all the fullness of God. And so he is victorious in all the ways that Moses and Aaron fail, though they are good examples and Christ types to us. So as they fail here, they point us to the one who will not fail. But let's get back to the story and we'll see how their punishment comes pretty quickly because then Aaron dies. At the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies and he passes on this role of the high priest to Eleazar. And it's, it is a, it's a pretty dramatic thing that happens here, how he tells Aaron he's going to die and then he dies up on the mountain. But also notice how there's obedience here. There's no grumbling. Moses and Aaron do exactly what God tells them to do. They obey. And this is significant, again, in this turning point in the book in that we're having a, general, a, a generational transition take place. It's been happening all along, but now the leaders at the inside, the center of the circle is changing. Miriam's dying, Aaron's dying, and we know that Moses will die after he sees the land. And that's in uh, Deuteronomy 34, at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, so now we get to the story of the bronze snake in chapter 21, and I know we talked about this, but I'm going to point out just a few things here. It looks bad, right? Like, things are really bad here. It feels wearisome. Haven't we been here before? Haven't we grumbled enough? Haven't we learned our lesson yet? God just brought the water from the rock. He's even done that before. He's shown that he will provide a way. And so while this is one of the hardest moments, I think it's also one of the most significant, and it's significant where it is too, right after Moses and Aaron's failure. Here at one of the final moments of grumbling in Numbers, we also have one of the most beautiful pictures of Christ. And we know for sure that this story is meant to point us to Christ because Christ tells us himself in the Gospel of John that he will be lifted up just like that bronze snake so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And that's in John 3, 14 to 15. He does this work of interpreting for us. He says, that was me. Notice this detail in Numbers. All they had to do was just look at the snake and live. And how awesome is that a picture of our Savior? Just like they were to look at the snake and be healed, we are told to look at Christ and believe. Christ is the remedy for our sin, just as the bronze snake was the remedy for their deadly snake bites. And so it's a beautiful picture. It shows just how little is required of us and just how much Christ has done on our behalf. 
All they had to do was look and believe. And this is one of those main themes of Numbers again, this theme of believing and taking the Lord at his word. So we see how the story both points to Christ, and yet it also falls short of Christ, though, too, because while they could look at the snake and live, they would still eventually die. But Christ is better, and he gives us eternal life and righteousness. They were healed from the deadly venom, but we are healed from our sin, and we are made righteous before God. And so the story of the bronze snake is a significant moment where things are really not looking good, but we are pointed to something better that is coming, both here in the text and for all of time. And then lastly, just notice what else is happening in this chapter. They are actually starting to take the land. At the beginning of chapter 21, they are victorious at Horma, which where it is on the map, I'm not entirely sure, but this, it's significant because Horma was the place where they were defeated when they tried to take the land on their own without God in chapter 14. And now in this very same place, they're having a victory, and God is with them as opposed to not being with them as he was in chapter 14. And so the rest of chapter 1 is more about Israel's military victories of the Amorites and Bashan, and as I mentioned, we couldn't get into all the details of those battles and poems, but I just want to point out this major shift that we're seeing in these chapters as the new generation is taking over. The Lord is giving victory to his people. It says multiple times they took the land, they settled in the land. And so this is new and exciting that God's promises are already taking place here. And so I just want to leave you with some application or a challenge like Casey Casey did last week. I love how she left you with something to think about. I want to take you back to Joshua and Caleb and that different spirit that they had because now we can see especially how significant it is that they got to go into the land because they are literally the only ones who get to go in. I want us to think about how if we are looking to Christ and if we are honoring, are we looking at Christ and are we honoring him as holy in our lives? Because if we look to him, he is the one who can give us that new heart that believes and he is the one who can give us that spirit So will we look to him despite the circumstances around us? And will we look to him even though things are hard? Because he can give us that different spirit, that believing spirit that allows us to honor him as holy in our lives.